But I just want to really take the opportunity to thank all of you for being here, and especially to thank Rabbi Silber and to thank John. Um, I usually, I normally live in Israel, so I don't often have the opportunity to be a part of this June program, which I've heard such wonderful things about for the past several years. Uh, so it's really quite a pleasure to be able to participate in some way this year. Um, I apologize, this is a little bit tall for me, so maybe I'll stand with it on the side so that I can see everybody a little bit better. Okay, um, as the title of uh, tonight's lecture indicates, I'm going to be talking about Takanota Kehal, or community enactments. In other words, about the power of communities, of Jewish communities, to actually legislate, literally to create halacha. We're going to be talking about... Excuse me, we're making more copies, um, so bear with us. We're making a lot more copies with a lot of Sorry. Okay, hopefully, in the meantime, you'll be able to look on, or I'll, I'll try to read slowly, and hopefully everybody will get copies momentarily. So in any case, we're going to be talking tonight about Sekanota Kehal, um, this concept of community enactment, of communities legislating or literally creating halakha. The Torah itself grants the right to legislate or to write new halakha, to create new halakha to the priests, the Levites, the judges of that time. I'm quoting Sefer uh, Dvarim, Deuteronomy 17.9. Meaning, right, if we think about again, the priests, the Levites, the judges of that time, we're talking about halakhic authorities. Right, the halakhic authorities of every age have the power invested in them by the Torah to create halakha, to legislate, to create new statutes. The Torah also seems to indicate that the king or the secular political authority has power to create law, to legislate for the Jewish people. But what we're going to be talking about tonight is actually a distinct phenomenon, which is about halakha being legislated neither by halakhic authorities nor by secular political authorities, but actually by lay people, by the kehal itself, by the community itself. Now, where does this notion or where does this concept of lay people actually legislating for themselves, for their own communities, where does that stem from? So the earliest source that we have for such a concept is, for those of you who have the sheets before you, from a Tosefta in Mesechet Bava which talks about just that. And I want to jump right into this first source so that we get a little bit of a taste for what it is that I'm talking about, and then I'm going to backtrack and provide a bit more historical background. So again, I apologize to those who do not yet have the sheets. I'll try to read slowly. Uh, and for those who do have the sheets, you can follow along. I'm in source number one. So the Tosefta in Mesechet Bava says as follows. Kofin b'nei ha'ir ze'et ze' livnot lahen bet ha'kneset uliknot lahen sefer Torah u'nevi'im. Right, the townspeople, right, B'nai Ha'ir, can obligate one another to build a synagogue, to buy scrolls of Torah and of prophets. That's the first thing that Tosefta uh, talks about. The Tosefta goes on to say that the townspeople can also fix market prices, and apparently we're talking about market prices of items such as wheat and wine, basic foodstuffs. They can fix market prices, they can fix weights and measures, they can fix laborers' wages, and they can also enforce their regulations. And the Hebrew here is le'asot kitzatan, reshaim le'asot kitzatan. And I think that that's an interesting word that I want to point out. It's not la'asot, right, to do, but rather le'asot to enforce. Like if uh, some of you may be familiar with the concept of get me'use, a get which has been forced upon the husband and is therefore invalid. Right, so they can also force one another to abide by these regulations. That's also a power that the, the B'nai Ha'ir, the townspeople, have over one another. The Tosefta goes on to say, to add one additional uh, power of the townspeople, and that is, Rishaim B'nai Ha'ir Lomar, the townspeople can declare whoever shows another's property to a third party, and here what they're talking about apparently is showing someone else's property to thieves, or informs the government, so that the property can be confiscated, and here we're probably talking about non-Jewish government, was perceived as being uh, thieves as well, effectively. Um, that person shall be penalized in a specific amount, and whoever permits his cow to graze among the vegetation shall be penalized in a specific amount. And again, they may enforce the regulations, Rishain le'asot And it's interesting that actually the parallel citation of this Tosefta 
Kin, that the Talmud Bavli, instead of saying Le'asot Kitzatan, uses the language of Le'asia Kitzatan, which we're going to see a bit later, um, but that's effectively the same idea. They can enforce this regulation upon one another. Okay, so up until now, the Tosefta has been talking about powers that the townspeople have over one another. What are these different types of regulations that the Tosefta mentions here? How would you, how would you categorize them? Civic. Civic. Okay, are they all civic? I'm sorry? Yeah, okay, more or less, right? I'm sorry? Commercial, right? So that's, a, I guess, a form of civic law. It's commercial law, definitely. If we had to, if we had to uh, perhaps break them down into smaller categories, how, how might we categorize these different types of regulations? Or different, different uh, uh, topics or issues that are being regulated here, what are they? Some of them you said are commercial. What else do we have here? Yes? Okay, there are some that are religious. Right now, I, I tend to agree that we're not talking about religious law. Right? We are talking about something that's a little bit more civic. Right? They're obligating one another to build a synagogue, to buy books of the law. Right? They're not obligating one another to keep Shabbat, for example. Right? So it is sort of public law, I guess I would say. Um, but yes, it does have a religious flavor to it. Right? It's not about commerce. It's about the religious, uh, the religious nature of the public space or something like that. Okay. Any other ideas? Procurement. Okay. Okay, so you're saying it's just coincidental that we're talking about a synagogue and the scrolls yes. of the law, yes. but we're talking about communal procurements. Yes. Okay, so that's perhaps another way of reading it. Again, I do want to emphasize that I, I agree with the statement that was made beforehand that we're not talking about religious law per se. And that's going to be important. We'll, we'll come back to that. Right? Because we're trying, on the basis of this Tosefta, which is again our earliest source for this notion, this concept of communal legislation we're going to have to ask ourselves what are the parameters of this type of legislation, meaning what can a community uh, legislate or what can a community enforce uh, one upon the other. So we'll come back to that. But up until now, we've been hearing about the townspeople having the right to, in, to create these regulations and to enforce these, re- enforce these types of regulations. Now the Tosefta moves on to talk about not the townspeople, but, uh, and we'll... we'll uh, perhaps define who they're talking about in just a moment, but to talk about different groups of people. But Tosefta goes on to say, right, which is the wool dealers and the dyers may declare, we shall all be partners in all merchandise that comes into town. In other words, whatever comes into town, we're going to split it up evenly amongst ourselves. Uh, Tosefta goes on to say, The bakers can enter into agreements among themselves. But it's interesting here, Rigi'ah is uh, translated here as an agreement, right? But it's possible that the word Rigi'ah actually comes from the word Rega, moment, right? And that the type of regulation that's being enacted here has to do with time sharing. Uh, that's possible also. Uh, that has been one suggestion for understanding that word. Um, in any event, so we have the, the wool dealers, the dyers, the bakers. Now we have the donkey drivers who can declare, we will provide another donkey to anyone whose donkey dies. If the death occurs as a result of the owner's negligence, they need not replace it. If it's the result of such negligence, they must replay it, replace it. If the owner states, give me money and I will buy one for myself, they need not comply with his make request, for they may purchase one and give it to him, right? So without getting into the particulars, right, now we have some regulations that the donkey drivers are imposing upon one another. And finally, we have the boatsmen who can declare, we will provide another boat to whosoever boat is lost. If the loss is the result of the owner's negligence, they need not replace it. If the loss is not the result of such negligence, they must replace it. If the owner took it to a place where people do not ordinarily take their boats, they need not give them another boat. Again, without getting into the particulars, right? Regulations that the boatsmen are enforcing one upon the other. So how, who are the people that this second half of the Tosefta is talking about uh, in terms of those who are regulating here? Right, not the townspeople, but Joe Is it only Joe Schmoes? Right? Professionals. Professionals, right? What, what seems to be common to all of the people who are mentioned here is that each one of them is, represents a certain profession, right? Or a certain craft. Right, so here we have, I guess I would say, crafts, almost like guilds. 
right? Groups of, cl- of craftspeople, the bakers, the dyers, uh, we, we don't mention the butchers here, but we could add the butchers, right? All these different craftspeople who are regulating, who are regulating what? Or who are regulating whom? Themselves. Themselves, right? So how is this different than the townspeople that we mentioned earlier, than the regulations of the townspeople? Yes? Um, that when you're making something, you can sort of figure out how you want to present it. But once you're taking something else and selling it, as well as the general communal marketplace, the community, it's no longer you. You can't say we're merchants, you're going to organize something. Because once you're involved with selling to the entire community, now the community is as much a part of it as you are, so the community regulates. Okay, so what you want to suggest is that, if I understand you correctly, and you can uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think you're suggesting that here we're not talking about individuals, we're talking about people who are functionaries within the community and the reason they have the ability to enact these types of legislations is because effectively they are community members or they're working for the community and with the community. Right, so you am I correct? Was that accurate? In other words, that, that this is somehow an outgrowth of the fact that the townspeople can legislate. Does everyone, would everyone agree with that? The Tosefta here seems to be talking about two distinct groups of people, right? The townspeople on the one hand and these craftspeople on the other, right? It is all within the context of the same Tosefta. But that's a good question that I think we should leave, uh, leave open-ended for now. Are the, is, is the right of the craftspeople to regulate the same as the right of the townspeople to regulate? But before we do move on, I just want to ask again, what are the craftspeople, who, or I should say, who are the craftspeople regulating? Or on behalf of whom are they regulating? Themselves. Right? So if the first series of enactments were townspeople regulating for the other members of that town, the other members of that community, the second group of uh, examples here are craftspeople who are also regulating for seemingly for themselves. In other words, it's not the craftspeople who are creating this enactment for other members of the community, but rather they're self-regulating, right? They're regulating their own, the members of their trade association, if we want to think of it that particular way. Yes? Were, were guilds um, present at this time? Okay, so that, that's a good question. I mean, we... I, the question was, were guilds present at this time? I mean, we know about guilds from the medieval period, which is a little bit later uh, than the Tosefta. Um, I don't know enough about, honestly, about uh, history from the Tosefta period to know if there was something, uh, even, even outside of the Jewish context, whether there was something, formal associations of the type that we know about from the medieval and early modern periods. I'm really not sure. What this Tosefta, I think, suggests is that the, the members of these different trades did see or did interact with one another as somehow members of a, of a particular, uh, you know, trade. Again, I don't want to use the word guild or union or anything like that because perhaps that implies something a little bit too formal. Um, it, again, on historical level, I don't know the answer. I'm sorry. Um, okay. In any event, this is what we have. This Tosefta is what we have as a Talmudic source for the concept of communal legislation. Now, during the Talmudic period, communal legislation was actually a relatively insignificant part of the legislative corpus. Right? Most of the takanot, the enactments, or sometimes called gzerot, that we can point to from the Talmudic period were, were not enacted by communities, but were rather enacted by halakhic authorities. Right, and I'm thinking of some of the big takanot, some of the major takanot from the Talmudic period that were enacted by people like Hillel, uh, that were enacted by people like Rabban Gamliel. Right? Important takanot, important new legislation that was promulgated not by the communities but rather by the halachic authorities. And that continued to be the case, right, that the preponderance of legislation was actually enacted by halachic authorities through the Talmudic period and through the Geonic period, which follows the Talmudic period as well, both of those periods were periods when there was fairly centralized halachic authority. Right? It, was, it was fairly accepted that the, uh, that the Tanaim and the Amoraim were the authorities, halachic authorities over all of Israel. The Ge'onim in uh, Babylonia, uh, in Eretz Israel, in North Africa were important centralized authorities, halachic authorities, for the various diaspora communities throughout the Ge'onic period as well. One of the markers of the shift from the Geonic period to the 
period that we tend to refer to as the period of the Rishonim, or early authorities, um, which very, very roughly I'm going to date to the year 1000. It's obviously a rough date. Um, one of the things that marks the shift between those historical time periods is a decentralization of authority. Uh, the diaspora communities dispersed ever further uh, from the centers in Babylonia and North Africa, northward uh, first into Spain and Italy, and then northward further north into France and Germany. And communities, small communities, uh, scattered communities, no longer looked to central halachic authorities as their source for all matters halachic. Instead, they began to look to their local authorities, and in the absence of local authorities, to the members of their usually small, uh, smaller in Northern Europe and larger in Southern Europe, but relatively small communities. And it's during that period, during the period of the Rishonim, that this concept of communal legislation assumes a very significant role and a very significant proportion of the new halakha that is created during this era. As a matter of fact, we can even think of it as the sort of the, the proportion of takanot kehal, of community enactments, are actually expanding uh, sort of in proportion to the limited scope of the legislation by halakhic authorities. Halakhic authorities are, are losing their authority, so to speak, or certainly their centralized, their universal type authority. Um, as I mentioned, the, the heyday, if you want to call it, of communal legislation um, was in the medieval and early modern period, particularly in the early modern period, um, which according to the historian uh, Jacob Katz and others, was actually the strongest or most organized moment of the autonomous Jewish community. That coincided, not surprisingly, with the ascendancy of communal enactments. And this continued, uh, the preponderance of communal enactments in various communities throughout the diaspora, really up until the Enlightenment of the 18th century. Um, the Enlightenment marks, among other things, the collapse of the autonomous Jewish community, and with that, the legislative uh, tendency of the Jewish communities as well. Um, so really, from the 18th century, this concept of Takanot Kehal is found infrequently. Um, there was a brief window of intense legislative activity uh, during the, from about the 1920s to the 1950s with the, uh, the, pre the preparation for and actually the rise of the state. Chief Rabinet assumed that power and attempted to uh, enact certain Takanot that would address the new reality. Um, but that was fairly short-lived and today we really don't find communities um, legislating in the kinds of way that we're going to be talking about tonight. So the question that I want us to ask ourselves, um, I'm just going to throw it out for now, um, and perhaps we can uh, come back to it towards the end, is as we begin to, as we begin to, uh, to define for ourselves this concept of community legislation of Takanot Kehal, is this something that in theory we would even want to revive? Right? Is this something that might possibly aid us in overcoming uh, the stagnation of halakha that, that everybody talks about, um, the, the halakhic stagnation that really has tied the hands of rabbinic authorities and has threatened both the integrity and the viability of halakha in, contemporary, in the contemporary day um, in the face of challenges like the Adunah crisis and others uh, such as that? Would this concept of takanot kehal perhaps assist us? Right, so that's a theoretical question that we'll, we'll, we will or we won't, depending on time, return to. But I want to I use that as a means of framing what we're going to be talking about um, in order to think about uh, how this could perhaps uh, not only remain a historical phenomenon, but be something that helps us as well. Um, but for now, I actually want us to go back to some of the classic sources um, and to try to get a little bit better of a sense of what we mean when we talk about these takanot, what are the parameters of this legislative activity, how did it work in uh, its, again, heyday in medieval and early modern Europe. So let's uh, return to source number two, um, which I hope now everybody has in the source sheets in front of them. Now, the Talmud does not ever, again, the Talmud provides us with a Tosefta that we read as a, as a source for the concept of communities legislating, but the Talmud doesn't ever really discuss the basis for this communal authority. Right? What, what imbues the community with the power to 
legislate to create these type of laws that are going to be binding upon one another. So therefore, the parameters from a halakhic perspective are actually pretty unclear. Um, for example, must all members of whatever community we're talking about agree in order to be bound by this legislation that the community is enacting? Can, uh, or, or why can the majority, assuming that we're not going to get unanimous approval of this, right, why can the majority, if that's what it is going to be, why can they impose their will on the minority? What gives them the power to do that? Um, to whom do these takanot or enactments apply? Right, do they apply, how do we define, in other words, the, the, the parameters or the, the boundaries of what constitutes a community? And many other questions of this nature are the kinds of things that I want us to consider as we move into, uh, as we move into the additional sources. So first off, I want to take a look at Rashi, um, which is source number two. Um, this is Rashi's commentary on, as I mentioned beforehand, the rendition of this Tosefta that we've just been reading its iteration in the Talmud Bavli, where again the term le'asot uh, kitzatan that we saw in the Tosefta appears as le'asia al kitzatan that they may enforce these, regu- enforce these regulations upon one another. And Rashi says here, by means of defining what grants them the authority, or what are the parameters, excuse me, not what grants them the authority, but what are the parameters of this legislation, and Rashi says here, Right, that the, they have the authority, and here we're talking about the townspeople, to find any person who violates their regulations, even if those regulations diverge from the laws of the Torah. And so that's a pretty bold uh, definition of what are the parameters, what the parameters of this communal enactment, uh, this communal legislation might be, Rashi says that this communal, this type of communal legislation is legitimate and can be enforced even if it contradicts laws of the Torah itself. Diverge or contradicts? Diverge, okay. Thank you for, thank you for, uh, for correcting me. Perhaps we shouldn't, I shouldn't jump to the conclusion of contradicts. Right, let's stick with diverges. Right? Diverge, so you're suggesting that perhaps right. we'll confine diverge to. might not be written down, but it's not in the Torah, but the resulted in Okay, so you want to suggest that perhaps they only. Ha- perhaps Rashi is not so bold as to suggest that they have the authority uh, to enact and to enforce this legislation if it actually contradicts the Torah, but only if it digresses insofar as it touches upon a realm that the Torah itself did not relate to. Right, so thinking of one, uh, or even thinking back to the examples that we saw, right, the Torah doesn't fix market prices. Right? So that's not actually a contradiction. When the townspeople fix market prices, it's not a contradiction of the laws of the Torah, but it's uh, a, a, a move into a realm or into territory that the Torah did not actually relate to. So perhaps we should read Rashi in that more minor way. Yes? On the other hand, it does raise the question what if these local laws came into conflict with halakha? What trumps? Okay. It's kind of like states' rights. Exactly. So it definitely raises the question, right, even if it doesn't answer the question, and I, I, uh, I appreciate that point as well, right? Even if it doesn't actually answer the question, it certainly raises the question of what happens if the community legislation actually does address issues that the Torah addressed, but actually diverges in the sense of contradicts, right? What, what then would be the power or the authority of that communal legislation? Um, and again, if we're ta- even if we're talking about this communal legislation as being in the realm of civic law, certainly the Torah has what to say about civic law, even if it didn't touch upon every realm that every community might find relevant. Um, and so that's a question that we're going to have to keep live and ask ourselves uh, again as well. Now, just by way of example of what, uh, not only of what types of legislation we're talking about, but also ways in which the halakhic authorities actually grappled with this question of what is, uh, what is the power or what is the authority of the community in, these, in this regard, I, I want us to take a look um, at 
a response of Rabbeinu Gershom Me'or Hagola. Now, some of you may be familiar with Rabbeinu Gershom as himself, uh, one who enacted many well-known takanot, right? Uh, and the question of whether he himself enacted them or whether uh, others enacted them is, uh, we can leave as a question mark for this moment that's been uh, raised and, and disputed by several uh, contemporary scholars. But in any case, attributed to him are some of the significant takanot who emerged from early medieval Europe, such as the ban on polygamy, uh, such as the prohibition to divorce a woman against her will, um, and many other important takanot of that nature. Now, I would point out that Rabbeinu Gershom himself right, is not enacting necessarily community takanot, right, takanot kehal. Seemingly, Rabbeinu Gershom is one of the leaders, as one of the halakhic authorities of the diaspora community of the time would seem to have power to legislate based on the power invested in him by the Torah as one of the halakhic authorities, one of the leaders uh, of the community. Um, and so perhaps that it raises a question, I think, as to whether we can relate to Rabbeinu Gershom's, again, the, the takanot attributed to Rabbeinu Gershom as takanota kehal, or whether those are actually the type of takanot that were created by halakhic authorities, it's interesting that actually the Rishonim themselves refer to those takanot in both ways. They refer to them as takanot of Rabbeinu Gershom, they also refer to them occasionally as takanot kehal. And that's true of some of the takanot that are attributed to Rabbeinu Tam, to Rabbeinu Gershom, uh, excuse me, uh, Rabbeinu Meir Mirutenberg, and other important stages of the Rishonim period, that there seems to be some slippage between the relation to these enactments as either enactments of the greats or enactments of the lay people. Um, but uh, we can leave that aside for the moment. Let's take a look at source number three, the response of Rabbeinu Gershom. Now, we'll take a look at the, at the English. This, is, this begin, begins with a question, as, uh, as responds are wont to do. The Jews were traveling in a boat, and it sank. The passengers were saved, thankfully. The money was in cases, right? It's a little bit cryptic, but I think what they're talking about is the cargo, right? The cargo happened to be uh, chests full of money. One of the Jews who had been saved hired a Gentile to help him salvage the money in the cases, right, which are now sinking down to the bottom of the river. The Gentile found the case belonging to Reuben, but the case was too heavy, so he broke it and threw its contents into another boat, right? So trying to help, uh, couldn't pick it up from the bottom of the riverbed and broke it open in order to toss the money out. It was a... Uh, the Jew salvaged coats and whatever he could, and so did the Gentile. It was a dark night, and other Gentiles gathered and grabbed some of the gold and silver and other items, and other Gentiles broke open the other cases and took the contents home with them. It becomes somewhat of a free-for-all. Everybody's breaking open the cases and taking the contents. It's dark, it's night, um, and all of these, the, this precious cargo is starting to disappear. The next morning, Jews tried to re retrieve the items and return them to their owners and to bribe the governors and the judges to investigate who the looters were. The communities that gathered there and grieved over their loss of their brethren issued a decree providing on penalty of a solemn imprecation that anyone who obtains anything that was lost on the ship must restore it to its owner according to the custom practiced in most Jewish communities for the benefit of anyone who loses anything by theft or in any other manner requiring anyone who obtains a lost article to restore it to its owner. Right, so here's the first indication right, that we have of a community. It's interesting here, it's referred to as a custom. Later we're going to hear it referred to as an actual takana or enactment. According to Talmudic law, what happens when someone drops an article in a river? Right, a chest of money or a wallet or anything like that, any item in a river? According to Talmudic law, the assumption is that that owner has had what's called yeush, right? that that owner has despaired, right? you drop a wallet into the river, the likelihood of getting it back is pretty minimal, and so the owner is assumed to have despaired of ever retrieving that article, and therefore, and thereby sort of given up his or her claim to that article, and so if someone else later on finds that item, that item is effectively ownerless, and whoever finds it can acquire it for him or herself. However, here we have the first reference to what's going to become the focus of our investigation, which is that apparently the community that Rabbeinu Gershom is addressing had a, again, he referred to as Mikhan, later referred to as Takana, an enactment that in spite of that Talmudic law, the people of that community were agreed to return to one another lost items, 
even if they had been uh, given up in that particular, by theft or in any other manner. Um, they agreed to return it to its owner. But, right, 30 days later, when Reuben was still searching for his lost property, a certain non-Jew sold to Simeon the gold of Reuben that had been lost on the ship, and Reuben found out and demanded it back, and Simeon refused to return it to Reuben, declaring, I have become its owner because an article carried away by the sea is free to all, right? And that's on the basis of the Talmudic law that we just cited. So this question is being posed to Rabbeinu Gershom, what is the law, right? We have the Talmudic law on the one hand, which seems to vindicate Simeon, right? He indeed can be the new owner of this gold that reemerged 30 days later. And we have the claim of Reuben that on the basis of this community minhag or enactment, Simeon is obligated to return that gold knowing that it was originally Reuben's. And so what does Rabbeinu Gershon say about this? Right? And I think that here we're going to see that Rabbeinu Gershon is going to be addressing one of the very questions that we asked ourselves. Right? We have here somewhat of a conflict right, between Talmudic law on the one hand and this community agreement on the other. What trumps what? And so Rabbeinu Gershon writes as follows. According to the question... My opinion inclines as follows. Even if Reuben did abandon hope of recovering his property, right? even if Reuven had Yeush, right? which would allow Simeon to become its new owner, even if he did abandon hope of recovering his property since a communal enactment was adopted there, right? and here it is actually called a takana, right? or a gzerat kehal, right? kevan shegazru kakehal in the Hebrew, since a communal enactment was adopted there providing that anyone who obtains anything that was lost might restore it to its owner, Simeon must return the article to Reuben, even though the Torah gave it to Simeon, because Hefker Beitin Hefker, right, and that's an important term in terms of trying to understand what grants the community this authority, right, because the court has the power to expropriate an individual's property. And we don't have time, unfortunately, to go into uh, the details of what constitutes Hefker Beit Din Hefker, um, but briefly, um, one of the sources for this, con- one of the original sources for this concept is actually a, uh, a Tosefta in Mesechet Shkalim, which talks about fields of Kilaim uh, that the Beit Din would be mafkir, would basically uh, make ownerless after all other, right, because of the after all other measures had failed. Um, and this concept of Hefker Beitin Hefker, of the power of a court, and here I want to say of a, of a community-appointed court, um, applies, is understood to apply in cases of monetary law. Right? That the Beitin has, has the power to, to extricate or to remove somebody's property. Right? And Rabbeinu Gershom is using that power as one of the bases for this concept of communal enactment which allows him or which allows the community to legislate that although by Talmudic law Simeon has full rights to that gold, because the community has declared it otherwise, because the community has agreed not to take these items but rather to return them to one another, Simeon is actually obligated to return that gold to Reuven. Um, and he goes on to say an objection that we apply Hefker Beitin Hefker only to a distinguished court such as that of Shammai and Hillel, but not today. Right? In other words, you could say Hefker, Beit Din Hefker, right? we're talking about a Beit Din, that doesn't apply, or that's not relevant to community enactments. That is not a valid objection, right, Sorbeno Gershom? As the rabbis taught, Scripture states, and the Lord, and this is a quote from, uh, from Shmuel, which we won't read right now, but in any event, that even if the most insignificant person is chosen as a leader of the community, he should be considered the equal of its mightiest. Therefore, all the communal decrees and acts are valid, and Simeon may not violate them. He must return the property to Reuben, and he should not covet property that does not belong to him, since for these reasons and others he did not merit them, and so is the law. Okay, so if we had to go back to the question that we asked beforehand, right, which is, what happens when a community enactment actually deviates, as we said, from Torah law, Right, and here I think we actually do have not only a deviation as in a moving into new realms that the Torah has not legislated, but here we actually have a deviation in, insofar as we have a clash between Torah or Talmudic law, which declares that Simeon is the rightful owner of this property, 
is the rightful new owner of this property. And we have a community enactment that decrees that Reuben is the rightful owner and therefore the property must be returned to him. What is, what trumps what according to Rabbeinu Gershom here? It's actually the communal enactment that trumps the Torah law. Right, so that, again, even if Rashi's, uh, if Rashi's statement that we read beforehand is somewhat ambiguous, I think Rabbeinu Gershom's is more pointed. Yes, this is actually uh, a radical statement on the part of Rabbeinu Gershom or in the way, in this, in this uh, means of conceptualizing the power, the authority of a communal enactment actually not only to circumvent but actually to, uh, to uproot in a sense or to contradict Torah law. In the interest of time, um, I'm going to skip the responsa of Rashba, that's source number four. Um, but the, the one of the points that the Rashba makes here um, is that community enactments, because they are not exactly Torah law, community enactments don't necessarily abide by the rules of Torah or other rabbinic law. Right? And so therefore, for example, community enactments um, on criminal matters, for example, right? community enactments which allow for the punishment of a moser, one who informs on another to governmental authorities, like we saw in the Tosefta. Right? Who can be a witness for that type of criminal, uh, criminal case? Right, according to the Torah, the Torah very specifically circumscribes the number of the, 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 the categories of people who are allowed to be valid witnesses. But according to the Rashba, um, just by way of example, and others agree with him, because community enactments are not exactly Torah law, the usual rules, for example, of who is or who is not a valid witness do not apply to these communal enactments. And in fact, we can expand the categories of who can function as a witness. For example, women and minors and other normally disqualified people. Right? So in that respect, right, again, if we're asking, if we're, we're looking at the relationship of these community enactments to Torah or to rabbinic law, that's actually a way, seems to be a way in which these community enactments slightly digress or slightly move beyond the principles or rules uh, that regulate the application of Torah law. Um, just as a means of remembering that the community enactments are not quite halakha. Um, and that, that's going to move me to the, to the next question that I want to ask, which is the great latitude uh, that, we've been, that I've been pointing out in terms of enacting this type of communal legislation, right? and I, I neglected to mention beforehand, but uh, these communal enactments, generally speaking, um, were considered effective not only for civil law, as we mentioned beforehand, but also for public law, by which we would refer to, for example, issues of taxes, of election of officials, and things like that, meaning the governance of the community, and also to criminal law, as I just referred to, right? Not for religious law, that's important, um, but it is considered effective and applicable um, and legitimate both in the realm of civil, public, and uh, criminal law. So this great latitude in enacting communal legislation might have actually led, right, the danger of all this, is that it might have actually led to the creation of a body of law that was divorced from halakha, right, that contradicted Torah law and is a totally separate body of Jewish law that is not one and the same as halakha. Um, and this is something that halakhic authorities saw as significant or significant and important to prevent. Um, and so the next question that I want us to consider is how did the rabbinic authorities who dealt with these communal or conceptualized these, concept, the, these types of communal enactments like Rabbeinu Gershom or like the Rashba who we just referred to, how did they work to prevent Jewish law um, from spinning off, excuse me, to prevent the community enactments from spinning off into an entirely distinct and separate body of Jewish law. Um, to prevent <coughs> this, what the halakhic authorities worked with were developing a series of mechanisms that actually worked to bridge the divide between these communal enactments and the halakhic authority and to anchor these different enactments in the halakhic system itself. 
what does that mean? Um, and here I want to take a look, in order to, uh, to make that a bit clearer, I want to take a look at, a, a, going back to the Gemara itself, a Gemara which follows the citation of the original Tosefta that we discussed. Um, so it's a Gemara from Masechet Bababatra where that Tosefta is cited. This is source number five. I mentioned the butchers beforehand because they actually come up in this Gemara. Um, the Gemara says as follows, that certain, budget, certain butchers, Hanhu Bei Tabche, right, certain butchers regulated their affairs together to the effect that whoever worked on another's day would have the hide of his animal torn up. Right, so they divided up the days of the week. There were too many butchers in the town, so everybody got to work on a particular day and not on others. Now, one of them actually worked on another's day, and so, just as they had promised, they tore up the hide of his animal. The guy was incensed, and they came before Rava, and Rava ordered them to compensate him for his damage. Now, why should that be, right? They, they said in advance that anybody who worked on another's day was going to have the hide of his animal torn up. So why did Rava rule in that way? In fact, Rav Yemar Barshami queried Rava, does it not say they may enforce their regulations, right? That going back to the Tosefta, it says very clearly that different members of different professions can regulate in this type of way upon one another. He did not respond to him, but Rava just simply declined to respond, right? As if it were a totally senseless or, or silly question. Rav Papa said, Rava acted correctly in not responding. Why? Because this rule applies when there is no distinguished person in the town, but when there is a distinguished person, they may not enter into agreements without his approval. That's, right, that's, that's, a, that's a far-reaching significant statement, I think, right? What, why does Rav Papa suggest that in fact Rava was right in requiring the other butchers to compensate the one who got his hide torn up? Don't they have the power, the right, the authority to legislate, to, to regulate one another? Well, I mean, in the susceptible sources, I mean, they use a lot of a shoot, and so that's what the root is. Um, <clears throat> I would imagine it's kind of like from the perspective of the rabbis, the rabbis are giving them certain guidelines and kind of saying, you know, you have the right to enter into these agreements under these conditions. It seems like perhaps for this about the animal hiking term, I don't know if that was in the Josepta or if that was considered by the rabbis, perhaps it's just something that they came up with, let's do it, um, and not something that was permitted by the rabbis. Okay, so in other words, what Rav Papa is suggesting, what he's introducing into the equation here that perhaps we did not assume beforehand is that although we're talking about communal legislation, these takanot kehal, there is some role for the halachic, the formal halachic authority in the equation. Right? What is the role of the halachic authority? To kind of lay out at a high level, I think, the rules and I guess relative to damages and maybe choose. Okay, so maybe what we would say, if I want I just want to, I want to expand it a bit beyond this specific example, but I agree with you. We could say that the role, according to Rav Papa, the role of the halachic authority with regards to communal enactment is, uh, is to, sort, to serve as a sort of legislative review, right? To make sure that the community doesn't adopt harmful or inappropriate takanotes Right, to kind of keep them in check, to provide some sort of oversight to this communal authority, this communal power, which could you know, sort of run out of control if not, if, not, uh, if not reviewed by the halakhic authority itself. We could also say that on a symbolic level, it's important to grant this type of review to, uh, to the authority. This goes back to, what I, to the question that I raised beforehand. Right? It's important on a, forget about on a legislative level, but on a symbolic level that the halakhic authority has some role here. Because if we want to make sure that these communal enactments don't spin off, as we said, into this independent body of law, but actually remain anchored or connected to the main halakhic corpus, then perhaps on a symbolic level it's important that the halakhic authority function as some kind of review board. Yes? And then the publisher did the opposite of what he said. 
because your papa says, if there's no halakhic authority around, the community can do whatever they want to. If there's halakhic authority around, he has to approve it. I would say, if we're so worried that people are going to take this too far, we would say the opposite. If there's a halakhic authority there to make sure the community's doing okay, let the community do what they want. But if there's no one to watch over them, then how can we let a community do whatever they feel like is right? He's okay, so that's a good point. Right? In other words, the circumscribing of this concept of Tekanot Kehal does not go so far as to say that a community might not have any right at all if there are no halakhic authorities in its midst. Right? So they're not, I think the 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 purpose of Rav Papa or of Rava here is not to uproot the concept of Takanot Kehal altogether, right? so they're not going to go that far, right? and Rav does say that the townspeople have the right to do that, but to circumscribe it a little bit, it, it almost sounds like stealing, you know, taking the wind out of its sails, but I think the idea here is to circumscribe it to some extent at least where there is the possibility of doing that, right? at least where the halakhic authority is present and can somehow regulate or, or oversee what's going on here. Um, the danger, um, and I think this is perhaps underlying what you said, the danger of what Repubblica is suggesting here is that it potentially deprives the community of its legislative independence altogether, right? Which, again, kind of, uh, kind of misses the point of what communal legislation is all about. And I think that that's really a constant tension um, that, again, if we were to look at this in a more careful historical manner, um, I think that we would see that this is a constant tension that the medieval authorities grapple with, on the one hand, this desire to oversee and to regulate um, and to provide some kind of review of the community enactments, and on the other hand, the sense that the community really does have the, the, the authority and the power to, to legislate independently. Um, so again, just, just to quickly recap, I think that this is, this is the first that I mentioned, but perhaps the most significant mechanism which actually stems from the Gemara itself, for, again, keeping these Takanot this community legislation, in some sort of check to ensure some kind of proper, even if it's limited, review by, by a halakhic authority. Some other mechanisms that were developed over the course of time um, included, for example, the fact that Takanot were regularly interpreted and discussed by halakhic authorities. So even if the legislation itself stemmed from the community, right, a community group actually enacted these takanot, um, but the mere fact that the Chachamim were engaged, that the, the halakhic authorities of every generation were engaged in discussing and disputing um, these sort of takanot, kept it within the purview of the halakhic system. Um, and interestingly enough, another mechanism that was used is that the guidelines, there were guidelines for these takanot to ensure that they were in line with halakhic values. Um, so, for example, a takana had to be designed to protect um, halakha and not to uproot or destroy halakha. Right? Even if it contradicted Torah law, the purpose had to be to, to protect the halakha, like, for example, meaning making sure that people returned lost property is not a value that's in contradiction with halakha, right? The idea of lost property isn't in itself a halakhic value. Um, so that is one sort of guideline that halakhic authorities made sure was in place. Um, the takanot, the, these takanot had to be viable for many different, for most of the community members. Um, the takanot cannot discriminate against minority groups within the communities, and various other rules for community enactments that were promoted as a means of making sure that they did not spin off um, into a body of law that contradicted the basic, the core values of the halakha and the halakhic system. Um, I see that we're going to have to. Uh, draw things together, um, and so we won't be able to get through all of the sources that I had prepared. Um, but I want to, I want to end off um, with one additional point um, that I think just uh, reiterates what I had said just a moment ago. If you turn to the very last source, which is source number seven, um, Shuta Rashba, um, and I should have mentioned beforehand that the Rashba was an important scholar in Spain of the late 13th and early 14th century. Um, and so therefore he, and Spain at that time was a very significant community which really had many members and was in fact legislating on a fairly regular basis. Um, the Rashba, I want to quickly read through the, the, this response of the Rashba as a means of, I think, bringing these things together. So the Rashba is as follows. It's clear that the community may institute safeguards, enact takanot, and enter into agreements as they deem appropriate, and when they do so, the result is as valid as a law of the Torah. 
they may fine and punish those who violate their enactments, so long as the entire community agrees to this without objection. The same applies when all those in the same occupation in the town, such as butchers, dyers, boatmen, etc., enter into an agreement with regard to their work. For every group having a common interest is similar to a separate community, even if their agreement has not been approved by the other townspeople. And I think this goes back to the point that we raised beforehand, is there a difference between the townspeople and the butchers and the dyers and the, um, and the other uh, members of these different crafts? Well, they're, in essence, small communities within a larger one. However, these agreements must be approved by a halakhic scholar if there is one in the town, and this goes to the point that you raised beforehand, right? They can only limit the approval to the case where there actually is a halakhic scholar, or by a distinguished person who is chosen as a communal leader. If there is such a scholar or such a leader and they act without his consent, their agreement is invalid. As we read in the first chapter of Baba Batra, certain butchers <coughs> agreed among themselves, etc., etc. I'm just jumping a few lines. Um, this rule applies where there is no distinguished person, but where there is a distinguished person, they may not enter into agreements without his approval, and it was taught in the Tosef and Tractive of Messiah, the town people may fix market prices, etc. In short, all members of a single group have the same status as the inhabitants of a single autonomous community for all these matters, and every community may do this in exact fines and impose punishments that are not prescribed in the Torah as we have written, and as mentioned in the Talmud in the first chapter of Baba Batra and the Tosef of Messiah, and all the communities have so conducted themselves and no one has ever doubted this. Right? So one of the questions that gets raised here is whether this collective review applies only to the butchers or whether it applies to all the townspeople. Um, but I think that the point that the Rashba is making is that again, the halachic, it was important to keep these types of communal inactions within the realm of the main stream or the main halachic system. Um, is this a type of system that we would wish to revive today? Um, are these types of community regulations the types of enactments or the types of legislation that could perhaps assist us as a community in addressing some of the halachic issues or some of the communal issues uh, that it seems halachic authorities have really uh, felt their hands tied about? Well, these community enactments, at least traditionally, seem to have had the power to go beyond, certainly, Torah law, if not, uh, if not in all cases to contradict it, but to go beyond Torah law in regulating community actions. How precisely this would apply in the various cases that we can think of today in terms of uh, the crises that our different communities are facing when it comes to the application or the living of a life of halakha is something that uh, obviously we cannot answer al-regalachat on one foot, um, but I want to throw out the possibility that this type of power that really rests with the lay people, not only to promote halakhic values and to live a life of halakha, but actually to, to create halakha in a, in a, in a creative uh, sort of way, um, is something that perhaps we should consider and explore um, and perhaps could be of assistance to our different communities. So thank you very much.